0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Death Labs podcast here hosted by NetNrich, where we talk about all things threat research and detection engineering. My name is John Bamanuk. I'm the principal threat hunter here at NetNrich. I am joined today by John Giglio uh, for SADA. So uh, introduce yourself. Tell me a little bit about what uh, SADA does and what you do for SADA. Yeah.
1: Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. So, um, yeah, good to. Be talking with everyone. I'm John Giglio. I am the Director of Cloud Security here at SADA. And um, SADA is a huge partner with Google Cloud. And uh, what we do is we help our customers to be successful and to achieve their transformation goals with the power of Google Cloud. Um, My particular focus in that area is all around security and uh, myself and my team and just helping our customers operate securely on Google Cloud and do things in the proper manner, the right way to to go about securing your cloud environment. Uh, That's what we do. So thanks for having me. Gotcha.
0: And and describe, like, like what's your class of customers? I mean, not not specific names, right, to kind of calibrate. It's like, you know, who is this messaging geared for? We talk on small business, medium-sized enterprises, public sector. uh, You know, who do you normally do business with?
1: Yeah, go with yes and. So uh, we do all of those. Uh, we definitely do uh, small, medium, large businesses, enterprises, uh, as well as public sector. So uh, we're we're talking to all of those different types of businesses, and some of the use cases obviously vary a little bit um, depending on the size of the organization, certainly. But um, yes, yeah, Sada does does business across the board. Uh, we're pretty pretty widespread when it comes to you know segments as well we do uh, lots with healthcare retail like i said public sector uh, and any size organization so yeah we're happy to talk to anybody about using google cloud to be successful
0: gotcha so you know like i said when i think about like customers who are investing in cloud and and kind of the overall digital transformation you know security's kind of lagged that somewhat i've talked previous episodes i mean part adjunct faculty, so I'm involved in higher education as well, and uh, how we bring people into the security industry of saying, okay, I'm going to airdrop you into the level one SOC where after getting a bachelor's and master's in your GSEC or Security Plus, we tell you to turn off your brain for six months and apply these procedures for level one SOC where you're just a human uh, human grep filter, right? So, uh, you know, talk about like transforming security operations, right? Because particularly like level one sock sucks, right? How can we make, uh, you know, the experience of particularly entry-level security professionals less miserable uh, so we produce less whiskey-swilling uh, misanthropes?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so true. Um, yeah, it's... I, I don't know that we've we've 100 solved it yet, um, but I certainly think that we can get there. I think we're well on our way uh, to getting there. Um, I think to your point, a lot of it is about reducing that toil. So I think part of you know, part of what makes that level one job so awful is just like I said, turn off your brain, right? It's just toil. You're not really you're not really doing anything. That you have to think about or that you know challenges your intellect in any way, shape, or form. Right. You're just, you know, here's your here's your playbook, here's your monitor, right? Go, go click this button a hundred times or you know, whatever, like rinse and repeat. Um, so I think eliminating some of that toil is the first step to making the host folks' lives a whole lot better. Um, And I think automation is a big key and a big part of being able to do that uh, and letting the robots and the machines do the things that the robots and the machines are good at doing uh, and letting the humans do what humans are good at doing.
0: Gotcha. So like like what new approaches do you envision that we're doing or how can people succeed? Because we talked about automation. I don't know before the pandemic so like my sense of time is broken nobody remembers exactly how long the pandemic was I don't know five six seven years you know there's there's always been this notion of hey there's not enough people so let's let's automate all the things and certainly there's a new round of buzz with chat Gbt uh and I don't know exactly how how new language learning models are but now like automation is now top of mind because yet there's another new blinky light that people are interested in. Like how did, how to go about doing that safely? Because, you know, uh, like I said, there's a lot of ways to do it wrong. And I think in the case of the, of the target breach of 10 some odd years ago, that's a case of doing it wrong too many alerts. So you ignored the real because there was lots of false positives until there wasn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's still still a, a pretty big problem unfortunately, but um I think when it comes to automation, I think the uh the the key is to really just start to understand what you can automate with. Like find find the low-hanging fruit, right? So because there's a ton of things that can be automated. Um and to mm-hmm. your point as well, like you can you can break a lot of stuff. Uh not that I've ever done anything like that you know never definitely never broken anything with a script or you know trying to automate something never
0: um no you you don't you you don't really work in technology until you've broken production at least once that's right until then you're basically an intern right you could be a 35 year old intern but until you've broken production you've not really come into your own
1: yeah when you get that when you get that feeling in your gut of like oh no what did i just do and you know yeah. that it's broken and you know exactly how bad it's broken uh yeah that's that's definitely a, a good learning experience for sure so um but yeah so you can you can do a lot of things with automation without getting to that breaking point and there's there's some some low-hanging fruit that you can automate and i'll give you an example of that so um, you think about just bringing in additional context. So a lot of times you get an alert, right? You've, you've got some basic information. Maybe you've got a username or an IP address or um, you know, some, some other little bit of information, but you may not have the whole picture or the whole story. And so as an analyst, your first thing that you're gonna go and do is, okay, what other context can I bring in about this particular alert? So automation can be extremely helpful there because you can automate a lot of that collection that you would normally do. So if you're gonna go uh, take that IP address and put it into, I don't know, a handful of different uh, threat intel sources or something like that, right? And that, that would be your first step. Maybe you take an external IP, like, all right, let's see if anybody else knows about malicious activity associated with this IP address. That's something that you can very easily automate and save yourself some time. It's, you know, it's not a ton of time, but it's time. And if you do that over and over again, right? You automate a few of those things. Now you're saving a whole lot of time. So um, I think context to me is is a very kind of low hanging fruit area where uh, we can gain a lot from automation without taking action or taking any kind of uh, you know making any kind of changes that could potentially break something. Which is where my brain I know used to always go when I thought about automation. It's like, oh yeah, let's uh, let's automate the response to the alert, right? The actual action of maybe locking somebody out or, um, you know, shutting down a machine if it's some type of ransomware or something like that, right? We need to quickly take some sort of response action. That I think is Mm -hmm. where you can get into a whole lot more trouble. Um, But I think you can gain a lot from automation just with context and bringing in additional context uh, before you get to those kind of breaking changes
0: right so i i said you know and we've all been there you know analyzing or responding to an incident and the you know 50 browser tabs of just copying and pasting to okay figure out what all the other things and what context i can find and going to virus total or going to you know whatever services to enrich that all have apis that can all be brought to a you know i see I'm, I'm hearing the voice of my CISO who hates the phrase single pane of glass <laughs> um you know but you know it's really true right it's it's uh you yeah. know uh to to make the ram on my laptop accessible again so i'm not running 32 gigabytes of ram just in in browser tabs
1: yeah um yeah and, so true single pane of glass yeah. is a term that gets a bad rap uh but it is it is important um but yeah unfortunately it gets abused so
0: Right. You know, I need a portal to manage my portals. Right. Uh, you know, right. But, but I guess that's even a five year old dated expression. Right. Nobody talks about portals anymore. But, uh, you know, the the principle is still the same. Uh, so, I mean, it, you know, speaking of analysis, right, you know, kind of uh, talking specifically to threat detection, investigation, responsive, like digging into something. So, so how are you and, and and your customers improving, you know, their threat hunting techniques? A lot of people talk about that. threat hunting has existed since, I don't know, Mandiant coined the term over a decade ago. You know, how how are you deploying those techniques? How are your customers benefiting from them?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the biggest... Benefits when it comes to threat hunting that we see with uh, with the customers that we work with and, and some of the technologies. that I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna get into uh, with netrich and, and Good Chronicle and some of those kind of back backend uh, technologies. But I think I think one of the biggest benefits when it comes to threat hunting is just that time that time to uh, to response time to uh, get meaningful data back from the system. Um, you know, I think the the old uh, thought there is like you you build your query and then go grab a cup of coffee, right? Um, you know, I'm sure you've, you've heard that before. Just wait for the system okay. to process through all of these you know massive amounts of logs that it has to go crawl through to give you back some results. And then if your query was incorrect or it didn't quite give you what you wanted, right? Now you, you kind of rinse and repeat. You go do that process all over again. So you end up spending a lot of time waiting um, it's funny, when, sometimes when people ask me what I do, I say, I, I wait on computers all day long. Um, but you know that, that I think is a huge value area is just reducing that time of investigation, the time spent waiting on the computers and uh, the technology pieces. So like the Chronicle backend um, allows our customers to uh, really get some value from that and be able to quickly get meaningful data back out uh, of their searches, and not have to you know go take a, a coffee break every time they want to learn something about an incident.
0: No, I think that's absolutely true. Is is I kind of come back to we're on a race race of the clock, so to speak, right? Uh, is I don't know the Verizon data breach report is out yet. It probably will be by the time this podcast airs, right? And one of the metrics I always look at is just dwell time or whatever they're calling it these days of how long somebody's in an environment. Before they're detected uh, and some of our architectural, you know, limitations and, and older technologies is, you know, goes into that is if it's computationally expensive to search, then I can't really automate it um, or automate very many of them. You know, I can't, yeah. I, I can run you know, dozens of searches instead of hundreds of thousands. Right. And attacker techniques are always evolving. So uh, the speed really matters, especially if you want to detect it early on versus, you know, ransomware. Ransomware is easy to detect. The attacker eventually lets you, uh, not that eventually, pretty quickly lets you know, hey, you know, I've got you, pay me. It's that their entire model of the attack is to let you know that uh, right. they've taken your stuff, right? So we don't need detection techniques for that. We need detection techniques for things earlier in the attack life cycle of Privilege escalation, or PowerShell misuse, or lateral movement, or I mean, ideally, initial access. Uh, but there's so many different yeah. ways to even go about that. Is it's if you get it early, you know, you save the millions of dollars in cryptocurrency ransoms, or I don't know that. The, I'm sure Krebs still sells this, right? There used to be stickers or shirts that says Brian Krebs is my intrusion detection system right? You know, yeah. as, as well. people learned of yeah. their breach from Brebs. Uh, you know, I'm sure he probably still sells it, but uh, you know, a former yeah. student had that sticker on his laptop uh, and it just, that visual is coming to mind. And so, yeah. um, you know, is let's talk about, you know, in, in the past few years, kind of what difficulties have you had in, in finding specific threat types and impacts and, 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 where are the problems that we're looking to, to solve with that fast search? I mean, beyond what I just editorialized, because like I said, before we got on the air is I have a fair to middling level of success in, in not talking and letting the guests talk.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, it's all, it's all very good. And, yeah, that's definitely not the, not the way that you want to find out about something in your environment it's from, uh, from Brian curves. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's always sort of the challenge is where do you get your, you know, where do you get your threat intel from? Um, so we're, we're very fortunate to have, uh, Net and and, uh, Google and now Mandiant, um, which I know you mentioned to provide those sources of threat intel and to help our customers understand, okay, you know, this is something that's actionable right this is something that we should be doing something about it's credible you know, threat intelligence data um i don't have to sort through my threat intel data so you, you mentioned like a, a portal for your portal right uh threat intel for your threat intel of okay you know how, how reliable is this well who does this come from and you know are they pretty accurate or are they normally you know do i spend a lot of time chasing my tail when i go after these um, so having that you know, confidence in your intel sources, um, I think, is very helpful for our customers as well to be able to know that okay, this is this is legitimate, uh, and hopefully not get a bunch of false positives either. Right? That's that was always one of my pet peeves was you, know, you spend a lot of time chasing false positives or something that you think is legitimate or you know looks really interesting from a security professional's point of view but you know it could be bad from a company point of view um you know we always we always think those are the fun ones like you know we want to go chase down all the bad guys um but you know you can spend a lot of time waste wasted on that kind of stuff so having good intelligence data and having a good understanding of what do what do i actually need to care about and what do i not like what's what is going to cause me to chase my tail um having that information in there i think is critical and so you know the way that we see that in uh, the chronicle world and and with rich is we provide a lot of the -the out-of-the-box rules that will take the information from these various different threat intel sources um, couple that with information that we can learn from our customers about their environment and put together a set of meaningful rules that will alert them and uh, include the context that I mentioned earlier. So to try and save their analysts, you know, save their security folks time when it comes to responding to an alert. So um, I think you know our, our customers see a lot of value there with those kind of curated rule sets where we're taking all of these different bits of data and, and putting it all together um doing some of that automation that we talked about you know, previously and really just helping cut down on the time that they spent chasing false positives
0: right and like i said it, it kind of i don't know surprises me right you know i think it's an institutional bias in our industry for most people uh, of against false positives, will tolerate false negatives. We almost believe is yeah, we're going to miss things. That's okay. Just don't make me do work unnecessarily or uh, raise things up the flagpole that you know I say are high priority issues that turn out not to be. Um, you know that always burns you, right? Um, and yeah. you know I've, I've noticed in in providing threat and tell feeds also is. You know, you're not, you're not evaluated on comprehensiveness because nobody knows how to measure that. You're evaluated on false positives. Um, again, not even really contextual information, right? So, and very few of these providers you mentioned, right? Threat and tell providers is, you know, I noticed kind of a wide variety of, of people who provide it and most don't really give any context. They're like, hey, this IP address is bad. Maybe you can infer based on the provider of it. You know, uh, particularly in the open source realm, where it's just like, here's a bucket of indicators. You right. Know,
1: great. <laughs> what do <laughs> I do with them?
0: <laughs> right. You know, so, You know, there's a couple of companies that have just created an entire business model of taking all the indicators and saying, OK, these are the ones you actually should block. These are interesting for enrichment. Uh, you know that that we're also creating some of the same kind of mechanisms here. Uh, well, less from the blocking because uh, you know we're we're really the the threat detection piece of it, not uh, not the sore of it. But eventually, creating that end to end pipeline as well for those who want to to actually action things. And I guess since we you know broached it and danced around it, right? Of what you're feeling about automated response, you know the sore of taking automation that final mile, right? Automating analysis is great. Do you see a path in the near future to automate away at least these simple threats uh, that exist where you know we can go from point A to point B analysis quickly to say, block this IP address, isolate this VM, you know, re-image, kill a process, whatever. Cause we've been talking about SOAR for a while as an industry, are we going to get there yeah. where we reduce the level of fires we need to fight.
1: Yeah, I I think we're going to get there. Um, at least I I like to think that we're going to get there. Uh, I absolutely see it. Like you said, I I think initially I see it as the those simpler use cases, right? Because you you do have to be careful with it, and we we talked about that already. Right, to those breaking response changes, but. Um, there are definitely things that can be done and um, and should be done quickly and with an automated response in order to be most effective. So you mentioned ransomware, right? So and the way you you know the way you don't want to find out about ransomware is when you get the note. Um, so if we have you know some sort of automated response that can prevent it from happening in the first place, and if that can happen at any hour of the day, so that you know my on-call at 2 a.m. happens to not wake up to their phone message or whatever, right, to, to log in and go ahead and take whatever responsive action we would want them to take or, you know, whatever that may be. Like, if we can automate that response action so that we don't even have to think about it, um, I, I definitely see us getting there with with the tools like Soar. Um, there is certainly some maturity that has to happen first, I think, Um yeah, you know, we've we we sort of already already talked about it too. Like the the ability to break stuff, you just you have to be really careful. It's a really a crawl walk run type of process to get there. Um, but I absolutely think we can get there. Um, I think um, companies like NetEnrich, like Sada, right, we can help our customers get there as well. We can help them through that crawl walk run process of understanding what are the things that can be automated that we can um, get to the point where we have that fully automated response in place. Um, but it's definitely a process, Uh, um, and does take some time to get there, but do I think we can get there? Absolutely. Um, I think as an industry, we are headed the right direction, probably going to take some time, um, to get there. Things will obviously get easier as tools get better and and mature a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I mean i I think we I think we have to get there honestly. Um, I don't I don't see any way around it.
0: No, I mean yeah, the scale of the problem is only increasing, right? And and and, and yeah, you know, like I said, you, met, you mentioned like you know the automation creating it new and exciting opportunities to break production, right? As I, I go back to. Uh, you know, some machine learning research. I'm a PhD student in, in cybersecurity machine learning, writing my thesis, and created a machine learning model on domain uh, malicious domain detection. And then the pandemic hit, and that model started detecting government entities, particularly public health agencies, creating domains just haphazardly and immediately because organ- governments that are very bureaucratic and highly regimented change control. Threw the book out the window. Says get stuff out immediately and started deploying infrastructure the same way criminals did, is just rapidly, immediate operationalizing. Right, forget about IPv6 and DNSSEC and all of the hardening thing government entities specifically do. You know yeah. where where my model because it was deployed globally started blocking public health authorities. I'm like, that's a class of a. False positive, I never thought I would reach in my career of, you know, of disrupting public health authorities in a in a global pandemic. Uh, you know, yeah. halfway across the world. It's like you know, now now I'm really coming to my own where I'm a, a geopolitical threat actor unintentionally. Um, you know, so <laughs> you know, these systems can fail, particularly as as you know, our own behavior and our own, like the the blue team are just technology users change how we operate also and that's I don't know one of the great reasons I got into security things are always changing so there's always something new I don't need to research the same threat for years and years and years and become an expert in yeah I I think TreckBot's gone or Conti you know there's people like specialize in a couple of families and just ride that for years and I just get bored with it pretty quickly it's like I know all I really need to know about this. Now let's just block it, detect it, move on to the any of the other, other hundreds of threat actors and malware families and campaigns I need to research, uh, and the ones that we don't even really know about because nobody's brought them to the surface yet. So yeah. um, I think one of the the, the biggest revolutionary aspects i hate that word used in technology oh this is revolutionary because really we're just doing the same stuff it's just over the internet now but one of the things where that really changes a lot of things is just the scale of data that exists and i'm sure that it's still in best practice guides like in the start of my career i helped write best practice guides for system network administration what eventually became security administration you know, of, hey, you need to do manual review of logs. You know, in the 90s, that wasn't possible. Now, I mean, you know, you're talking about megabytes of logs in the 90s. Now you're talking about terabytes and petabytes. Uh, Good luck. Um, There's not enough people to just do that log review. um, So that's where automation uh, goes there. But, you know, how are we solving that kind of complexity of the volume of data to really at least do automated analytics to to pull out the signal from the noise because there's a lot of noise
1: (laughs) yeah yeah there definitely is um and absolutely i mean the volume has just exploded um you know everywhere even you know i can even look at like just personally and the amount of data that you know, I have even just like photos and videos, right? Like, so even just as a, as a person in today's world, like the amount of data that we generate now, you know, let alone businesses and all the data and stuff that they're processing and the different systems that are uh, online now. And yeah, to your earlier point of things that people are just throwing out there because they have to, uh, because the business says, you know, get it done. We need to have this right now. Um, and those all of those things start generating this data and this information that yeah somebody's got to go look at uh, or something right so uh, the ability of your systems when it comes to the analytics piece to sort through this massive volume of data that is only going to get larger um, is is going to be, incredibly important for our customers. And uh, I think, again, this is where, you know, we're we're very fortunate to have a backend like Chronicle that is really purpose built for that kind of large volume of data and to, you know, not have to take coffee breaks when you go to look across that data or to analyze across it um, or, you know, run those analytics that you need to run. And uh, so I think, you know, that's, that's huge for folks. That's huge for a lot of people that we talk to is, you know, they, they see the problem too. They see like, Hey, my data is only getting bigger. Um, Do you have a system that can help me understand it, you know, run analytics across it. And, you know, of course, you know, we can say, yeah, absolutely. We, we have uh, chronicle with, you know, net rich and um, you know, we can absolutely help with those mountains of data that you have and that are just, continuing
0: to get bigger so no absolutely you know I'm, I'm only getting older right you can tell from the gray and the beard right and i can only do so many coffee breaks without having you know heart arrhythmias now because i'm reaching that age so you know i, I need water breaks but you know I, I need to calm down on the coffee breaks um you yeah. so you know that, that kind of gets into i mean one key feature i'll, that I'll just touch upon because like, i mentioned it a lot it's like one of the biggest innovate it's not i don't know that's an innovation it's just the the thing that really helps with chronicle specifically is the pre-ingest parsing of everything into a uniform data model because that's yeah. what makes it work right you you can do it all on the back end but it's just going through the exercise of a phd in machine learning of like oh i've got to sit there and deal with all these edge cases uh because the data is encoded any of which way It's really just normalizing it to the same so that a login event on Windows and Linux and AWS and GCP and Salesforce and QuickBooks and all of the various things is all described the same way all the time. Now you can do things like behavioral analytics versus, you know, because I can look at login behavior across, you know, cloud SaaS platforms, on-prem and just cloud just... General cloud infrastructure, almost, and I'm sure this is true. Probably most of your customers have migrated on prem Exchange to either Google Workspaces or Office 365, right? Yeah. You know, I'm people, I guess, mostly law firms who run Exchange on prem, but that's more or less gone away where now all of that behavior is, is through cloud APIs instead of Windows event logs. Yeah. You know,
1: well, yeah. And they all look different. They all have different formats, right? To your point, so yeah, if you if you had to go through each one individually, you you would you know you'd never get anywhere. So you'd never be able to write a rule across those different sources and and have it look the same because you know yeah your your SaaS app, your Salesforce, your your on premise systems, your firewalls, your you know everything has its own format. Um, that of course they like to change from time to time as well, just to keep us all employed. Um, but you know, there it's, it's huge being able to put it all into that UDM format and be able to write those rules. Yeah. It's massive.
0: Right. You know, and I don't need anything increasing my job security at this point. I've got enough work to do. Right. Right. At at some point in my 40 year career in this industry, and I'm only halfway through it, I'd like to solve a problem before something is made worse on me, you know, by some, some (laughs) external entity. Just saying let's employ this technology elsewhere right that doesn't really work where it's deployed now but hey let's let's create self-driving cars where image recognition is flawed and now we deal with life safety risks instead of just you know goofy facial recognition uh oddities um so like. Kind of pivoting back to that, it's like, you know, why why is data analytics so important? Like, you know, how can we leverage this stuff to improve security operations, to kind of go back to where I started? How can we make the level one and really level two and level three SOC life suck less?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, I think, you know, it's just really that elimination of, of the toil, those tasks, like I was talking about in the beginning. Um, and, and I don't want to, you know, rehash something we've kind of already talked about, but, um, yeah, I think, I think that's how we make, we make people's lives better is put more of the focus on the skills that they have and the, the tasks that those skills are necessary for. So, um, you know, you can create a team of almost software engineers for security use cases, right? You can have mm-hmm. uh, folks spending time on tweaking and updating and creating these, those automations that we talked about that are helping everybody out. Right? They're helping reduce toil for everyone on the team. Um, and that's a totally different skill set. That's not a you know typical skill set that you would see on a security team, uh, at least, not historically, I mean, it's obviously becoming more and more common now. But, um, you know, the programming mindset, the systems thinking, the, um, you know, code first approach and mentality uh, is still very new in the security space. But those are the things that really help uh, reduce that toil and make everyone's lives a whole lot better. Um, And I think that's a big part of the transformation that we see as well. Is that sort of shift from um, the the focus on just manual work, like you mentioned, right? That kind of stare at a monitor all day, turn your brain off, right? The the shift from that into work that people want to do, um, the the stuff that's fun to do, like the you, you said, it, right? Make an impact, or right? You wanna you wanna make an impact at, at some point in in your career, right? On doing something that you know before before it changes for you or before it's changed for you. So um, I think that's what people wanna do and that's what we wanna help them and help our customers enable their teams to be able to do is focus more on that meaningful work, less on the toil uh, and utilize the systems and the tools that we know are available today um, to help them get there.
0: You know, I think, yeah, I, and and like I said, it kind of goes in, into, a, like I said, a passion of mine. It's just, let's just find something new out there, you know, and it's easy to get caught in a rut, especially if you're in firefighter mode. It's, it's the best thing I've done for my career that really kind of vaulted me forward is about 10 years in, uh, you know, uh, for reasons unconnected to, you know, professional life, more or less took a break for like a year and a half of the industry. You know, it was still working, money was coming in, but it's, it's, I was out of the trenches in firefighting, you know, for a year and a yeah. half. So I come back fresh and be like, what do I want to go do with myself and have the intellectual space for some creativity uh, without being like, I've got to go through the grind of tickets or, uh, you know, the grind of JIRA or you know, pick our system du jour of, you know, shoveling work at us faster than we're ever going to be able to do, do it is to be able to have that at a manageable level just to have, uh, you know, I think in, in psychology, like, you know, be relatively in a flow state where your your mind is able to work and you're able to be creative. Because if you're doing threat hunting, right, that's that's creative. You know, there's, yeah. there's a, the genre of threat hunting of, oh, look. You know Palo Alto Unit 42 or Netentrich or Mandiant or whatever did this threat report. Let's control C and control V indicators in in our sim or in Chronicle or whatever to go hunt in my environment. I mean that's not hunting. It's important yeah. because somebody's kind of okay, This new threat report's out. Has it hit me? Okay, you got to check that. But that there's no intellectual thought in there uh, because I had mean, just control C control V work.
1: Yeah. Work that can be automated, right? That's toil. Perfect example.
0: Well, you know, and I don't even know where we are as an industry. There used to be an attempt to sit there and just automate reading of the PDF threat reports and pull out what's actionable and do that. And there were tools for that for a while. And I don't think it ever got any farther than just mining for indicators. Um, You know, but the same thing. It's like, you know, nobody's got. Uh, time to go read 30 page threat reports, you know, just give me the things that I control C, control V now because an executive read it or an executive read the executive summary of it and asked That's me great. if this impacts us. You know, and 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 few of us like writing reports. You know, there there's work that we're doing internal of just using chat GPT to do the long form writing executives like, because there's yeah. that communication gap between, okay, this is the technical stuff. They want to hear it in business terms let's create a machine with a language learning model to turn tech into business. Um, you know, and, and there's some interesting things that we're coming up with to, to automate, you know, the time it takes to write things, which is never uh, for, it's not fun for a lot of people. We're notoriously poor communicators as an industry uh, outside yeah. of ourselves, you know, good drinkers, less communication, less so.
1: Right. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's true. I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on, you know, it's, we, we bring people into our organizations to do meaningful work. I mean, that's, that's what they want to do. That's, that's what we want them to do. Right. Like I, I don't really want to hire anybody to, to go do the same thing over and over again and and hate their life. Right. I, I want people that can understand my business, that can, um, you know, think creatively, uh, innovate, right? See the problems in the organization and help me solve them uh, in maybe new and creative ways using new technologies like you like you talked about. Maybe, maybe that's Chat GPT or something else. But um, yeah, I mean that's that's one of the major benefits I think of of this type of transformation we're talking about. You know, security operations is getting rid of that stuff that just nobody wants to do it's not fun uh it can definitely be automated and your your people can focus on that skill work that meaningful work that you know no no robot can do for you because it requires you know intimate knowledge of your business and your customers and your you know there's so many things that like having that understanding of your organization um is going to be like, you're the only person that can do it. Right. I can, I can, even as an outside consultant, like I can come in and make recommendations to you, but I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of your business. You know, I don't know Joe and Bob and, you know, Sue and all the folks like in your business that, uh, you know, the politics, the internal stuff, all of those aspects of getting things done in an organization, right. You're, you're the only person that can do that. Like I, I hired, People as the organization, as the customer, like I want the people to be focused on doing those things, not the uh, staring at a screen for eight hours a day, you know, clicking the same button over and over again, or, you know, like you said, reading a 30 page report. And really all that I need is just, you know, five IP addresses that come from it so I can see if I'm affected. Right. Um, Those, those are not fun. So yeah, that's, that's a big part of this transformation that I think as an industry, right, we're trying to get there. We're, we're, we're seeing these problems. Um, and unfortunately in some cases, right, we're still, still dealing with these problems. And um, that's where, you know, I, I hope our, our organizations can help our customers uh, sort of you know, eliminate that that toil that we've been talking about.
0: Right. So, I mean, I kind of, it keeps me, I thought I was thinking of, of this in like detection engineering and for 25 years, I mean, with SNORT and AV and Yara and EDR and how we create detection rules of looking for atomic things, even just beyond indicators. Hey, I'm looking for these artifacts in a binary. Now I've got an AV EDR signature. I'm looking for these artifacts and network traffic. Now I've got a next gen firewall, SNORT, Zeek signature. Uh, you know, or these artifacts and logs and I've got a L signature, you know, and that's one tool to automate, but that automates something I already understand. You know, where do you see like analytics and going towards UEBA and how that's evolving uh, to go find, like I said, the net new stuff is you know, we don't, we're not really talking about vulnerability here, but I mean, there's always the young professionals. Oh, I want to get into red teaming and I want to find O-days, right. Even that that's finding something net new, you know, is how, how do we go to analytics or UEBA to find net new attacks, net new threat actors or campaigns?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, I mean, I think it's a challenge, right. Understanding, um, that you know uaba especially is um can be very challenging to uh to analyze large amounts of data and make meaningful predictions uh from that data um we talked about false positives earlier right that's that can be another huge source of uh of false positives but you know it, it can also be super helpful so um yeah i think i think there's still a challenge there. And um I know I know Netrich is working on certain things with UABA as well to um, add into the resolution intelligence platform. So I don't know if there's anything uh you can share with us on that, but I know that's fairly new. Um but yeah I mean I, I think I think there's still quite a bit of a challenge there. Um I think it's it's sort of like understanding The signatures, right, so the the kind of the old model of signature based detection that you mentioned um, versus the the new way of let's let's not have to write a signature for every possible combination of actions that somebody could possibly take in our environment. Uh, Let's instead focus on the behavior of what does it actually look like so. You know what is normal. What's our baseline, and then what does it look like when somebody uh, deviates from that from that baseline? Um, understanding more of the behavior, and not so much the nitty gritty details of like it was this file or you know this particular uh, whatever you know binary. Like you said, um, I think I think that's the challenge. I think we're getting there as an industry. I've seen some some pretty good UEBA. Um, but even that stuff can still generate, like we talked about, you know, those false positives, um, where you know you set off all the all the alarms, right? The the firefighting you mentioned, you know, all the fire alarms go off, and it's like, oh, well, that was just, uh, yeah, I, w- I was just doing my job, like you no, know, yeah, I totally meant to do that. I oh, definitely you know, wanted to share that. <laughs>
0: You know, I, I will say like my own research team generates the bulk of the UEBA alerts. But in, in fairness, it's not really a false positive, right? Because um, right. It, it is noticing attack traffic that really is attack traffic against synthetic targets or us testing our rules, you know. Um, you know, it, It's known behavior. There's just no business impact to it. Or, or I mean, right. the, the business impact positive, we're creating a better product right but it's always somebody like me that's probably the biggest the biggest source of detections if you're not careful but it's also somebody like me you don't want a whitelist either because right. if you go to nation states target right you know yeah people in business email compromise and that kind of stuff are going to target my ceo and cfo right nation states are going to target somebody like me who's got admin privileges yeah which kind of is is the thing that i and am excited about now that, you know, with, with data normalization, we can really do with UEBA is when you think about how the Tenables and the Qualys and the Rapid7 and OpenVASs of the world, it, it's fundamentally the same product it's been for 20 years. Scan the internet, look at banners or other signatures, find vulnerabilities. And attackers use that for initial access, sure, or smash and grab, SQL injection, database theft type of stuff. But the modern attacker, the asset isn't the infrastructure, the asset is the identity, right? You know, yeah. it's not the path to the directory of the controller that the attacker cares about. It's the path to domain admin. Because once I have domain admin, it doesn't matter where I'm sitting in an enterprise. I'm firing off yeah. PowerShell everywhere, deploying ransomware, you're done, right? You yeah. know, from anywhere in the enterprise, I've got domain admin, It's it's game, set, match you know, then they'll do infrastructure-based stuff, but they have the permission to do it. Um, yeah. So like I said having that that balance of behavior that's normalized, you can see better deviations from the norm, you know, but also just mapping, you know, instead of like the number of hops to your critical at physical asset, which doesn't really exist in an in increasingly cloud world, It's how many hops are you away from domain admin, right? Yeah, initial access starts getting you to some privilege, but then it's a path to domain admin to where it's game over, at least enough privilege to maybe you just want to, oh, uh, you're a large tech company where your source code was just put on GitHub yesterday from the time of this recording, right? Is That's all permission-based stuff. By the time you get to the resource, you have what you need to execute the attack. Um, the attack yeah. isn't going through this infrastructure and doing network attacks the way they used to with lateral movement because it's just federated identity. Now, you know, that's the yeah. world. They don't have good tools yet to map things in the same way. That, that Rapid7 or Tenable or OpenVAS or all of these, these tools that were required to use for compliance reasons, but are basically the same thing they've been for 20 years, kind of noisy, yeah. not value, don't really solve the fundamental problem because we're talking about software supply chain and software bill of materials because, well, it's more than just OS and major application provided patches now. You know, now you've got to do updates of your GitHub software libraries or um, Node.js, MPI, or right. whatever it is, like
1: whatever third party you happen to be using. But, yeah.
0: You know, and that's that's the world we're in right now. So I mean, it's it's, you know, we've got some gaps and lots of data, you know, to work with, and at least it's it's cleaner data to where we can start trying to solve some of those problems. And and like I said, we didn't even really get into software supply chain which is its own special hell, but everything is kind of a special hell for us. You know, it's it's just sucking at greater scale and volume than it ever has, uh, which goes to our unlimited job security, uh, which means I'm never going to be able to retire.
1: That's right, Um, yeah. So
0: let's bring this, you know, kind of wrap it around to a less cynical note because, you know, I want to hopefully produce people that aren't, entirely whiskey swilling misanthropes maybe maybe just a little miasma than than misanthrope of so so how are we positively you know working together to, to impact enterprise and smb business Like right? you know what are we doing to make life better
1: yeah well and um, it actually kind of ties to to all the different things that you were just talking about so one of the things that we do here at sada is um we firmly believe that security is a big word, right? It's not just about security operations. It's not just about identity. It's not just about posture management. It's And you know, it's not just about a firewall or whatever different tool or technology you happen to be using. So um, one of the things that we that we do is we walk through what we call our, our cloud uh, confidence program. So it's a cloud security confidence program. And uh, what we do is we walk through all of these different aspects with our customers. So we talk about things like security operations, CSPM, firewalls, identity, zero trust, and all of these different aspects of security that you need as an organization in order to be confident in your environment, you know, which is ultimately what, what you're tasked with as a CISO, right? Reducing risk, you know, uh, you, you want to feel confident that you're doing all the right things. And so, um, security operations and all the stuff that we've been talking about is really just one small piece of that overall program. There are a ton of different areas. You mentioned some of them as well, which is a, I was glad you brought that up. But um, so I think I think that's a, kind of a really good way to wrap this up is to um, uh, talk about that and, and what we do. And like I said, getting to that understanding of the entirety of my security program. What does What does the whole thing look like? Um, what are my risks? What are my highest priority areas that I need to go and fix? And um, you know, maybe that is security operations. Oftentimes, it is, which is why I think we talk about it so much. But um, you know, having the total picture uh, is super important. And so, I would love for any of our customers, anybody that's listening to this, uh, come and and ask us about that. I'm happy to go more in detail and, and talk about it more in depth. Um, but I think that is something that we've seen a ton of success with, again, not just in security operations and transforming and modernizing all the things we've been talking about, reducing toil, um, but applying some of those same methods and some of those same practices to other areas of security as well uh, to achieve that that total transformation. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is make the business more successful. So um, I'll, I'll end with that.
0: Well, no, I I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, the one thing we have to do is like, what are the five biggest fires I need to fight right now? But also get to the what are the five most important things I can do to prevent fires from the most likely fires from happening in the first place, you know, to avoid the world where my data center is burning down for those environments that still have a data center, um, you know, um, you know, so it's it's really like, you know, not just Preventing the fires or fighting the fires quicker—it's—it's it's getting to how can I make things better? How can you? How can we increase the the lifespan of a CISO beyond twenty-four months? Uh, yeah. You know, uh, the one thing I joke with my boss is it's the one thing I've not done in my career is be a CISO. I'm willing to do uh, to be the post breach CISO. Come in when the checkbook's open, do all the transformative stuff. Hang out for twenty-four months. I've accomplished all I set out to do and then move you know before something bad happens again or the the checkbooks close and and kind of organization organizational inertia sets in you know because otherwise you're just you broke the choke it's it's it's, none of us get fired for you know absent just misconduct right a breach happens the CISO gets fired you know so how to how that person last a little bit more than 24 months uh because that's the person making the buying decision absolutely with that I want to thank you John for your time I think that you know covered a lot of great ground here uh for those who are interested in what we're talking about uh both our organizations will be at RSA so come find us uh happy to talk uh speaking of whiskey swilling misanthropes uh you know uh we'll uh we'll be present for fear and loathing in San Francisco that is RSA uh, next week, this, this airs the, the week before RSA, so uh, come find us, we'll be happy to talk uh, about our respective solutions. So that again, thanks, John, for joining us. You've been uh, listening to the Net Enrich uh, Death Labs podcast, uh, air every other Wednesday. Uh, so we'll be back again in two weeks from some more threat research content. So thank you again for tuning in. Thank you, John, and for Sado Systems for uh, being part of us this week. Absolutely. Thanks, John.